This week on Writers Inc. One of the cliches that I'm constantly coming back to, and I believe cliches most of the time are cliches because they're fundamentally true, or a lot of them are, you know. Um, and the one that I always talk to my friends about is a rising tide lifts all boats, you know, and it's so true, you know, and we're seeing that right now in that for the first time in literally probably 30 years, horror is having a moment. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hey, Zach, does it surprise you that JD is a zero inboxer? No. <laughs> No, not at all. Is, isn't everybody surprise me at all? Isn't every productive person in the world a zero inboxer though? You would think so. I'm I'm just obsessive about it. I can't I can't go to bed unless my inbox is clear. I just can't. I feel like that about the dishes in the sink, but I, I oh, can man. go to. I, I'm a zero inboxer too, but I can. Uh, I mean, I can. It, it doesn't nag on me that bad. We we don't do dishes in the sink at my house. <laughs> Well, I don't. I, my, I don't now. Now that I'm living alone, I don't do it here. <laughs> so uh, I'm very, I'm very particular about. I, that. I grew up in a house where you would like get hit or beat or like smacked yeah. with a wooden spoon if it's you left a huge anything pet peeve in. Of mine. Yeah, if you left anything in the sink, and like I don't care if the dishwasher's running and you just have a spoon that's dirty <laughs> or whatever. Like if you left that in the sink, my mom would just come at you like you know like a rabid zombie, um, and and you know like that sticks with you. Like I'm 50 years old and I can still hear my mom yelling at me so when I walk in the kitchen and I see something sitting in there even, even if my wife is like four feet away and I know she's gonna get to it like I just start getting all twitchy and like you know maybe, maybe I should do it maybe I should help her out maybe I get it out of well there. I uh, first of I all you're don't... 51 whatever <laughs> whatever Wikipedia says I, am, I know that because I'm the same <laughs> whatever <laughs> Wikipedia says I am are you kidding me <laughs> you, you, you can't escape Wikipedia my, my whole thing is like whatever uh, like I don't know I just I I don't want open loops in my head for stuff like that. And I just don't want to have to worry about stuff in the morning. So like every night I do basically a reset and just make sure everything's in its place. And so I can't have dishes out. I can't, I'm just, I'm weird about that. So I, I don't want to have any open loops and have to worry about stuff in the morning. So, well, you've got no one to blame. It's, it's easy to, I think to keep it all straight when you're by yourself. I, I think you're, you're going to find like, you're going to get so used to like, you can do all that. You can keep the kitchen the way you want it, the living room the way you want it. If something's sitting out of place, it's your fault. You know, there's nobody to blame. Um, but like you, you get used to the fact that everything is in its own place and all of a sudden somebody else is in that house and they're doing something a little bit different. I know. Than, <laughs> That's yeah. why I'm planning on doing this for a while. Yeah. Stick <laughs> Cause I just got out of that situation. So yeah. <laughs> oh, um, All right. Nothing that can't be solved by dual sinks, I guess, in the master bedroom or bathroom. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are you working on, Zach? I know you said you were sick yesterday. That—that's what I've been working on. Yourself. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, I, I mean, I, I was, I was sick yesterday. So yeah, I was, uh, I, I, I tried to work and I couldn't sit at my desk for more than like five or 10 minutes. So, so, I was like, so you must've been binging uh, stranger things then. I didn't, I couldn't even look at a screen. Oh. I didn't, I, I lay in bed all day. Oh, that's so rough. I, I honestly thought I got COVID again, but I took three negative tests. Like I, I even tested again a little bit ago, but, um, I'm doing a lot better today. I think I just got some kind of like 24 hour bug thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so wasn't working on anything yesterday, but, uh, but, um, just in general, um, mostly just been working on dead South and, uh, and doing a little bit of planning on another thing behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, that's been, that's been pretty much it for me. So, uh, what about you guys coming off of Thriller Fest? I'm still trying to get caught up from Thriller Fest. Like, I, I, that's what we were joking around at the beginning. Like, my email email box just completely filled up, and I'm trying to get back to everybody. And like, I've got a stack of business cards of other people I need to get back to. And 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 the hard part of that is like, I really should write down on the business card, you know, what I spoke to the person about, um, because you know, I, I've got literally got like 50 of them sitting here, and I have to try and remember what you know the conversation actually was with with each of these people, so I don't get back to the wrong person about the wrong thing. And uh, but I owe all these people something, so I, I need to do that. And um, I daughter is getting ready to start school so we're getting ready for, you know for that you know it's, it's it's a couple months away but like there's an open house and we've got to go and meet our teacher and you know lots of lots of crazy fun stuff and we're that uh, house that we bought in georgia we're at the tail end of that renovation um and you know like weird things happening there so like there's a movie theater in, in the house that that my wife built like we, we got rid of the garage and we turned it into like a home theater um they put stadium seating in there and they delivered the couches yesterday and, and like you know they look the couches were fantastic picture wise but like they didn't properly measure whoever you know told my wife what size couch we needed so like they put them in and there's only like four inches of clearance between the couches for like people to walk through so like we, we either have to replace the couches or you know they're or you know do something but like you know lots of silly stuff just coming out of random random things i hate when that happens i hate when yeah. i look at my my stadium seating <laughs> doesn't come the, the way it looks on the internet it's a nice little movie theater and i'll probably never use it because i don't know when we're going to actually visit that place what, what about the uh the the troll bathroom you're installing the troll. Oh yeah, that was another one. I don't know where this came from. So my wife, you know, there was a, a small bathroom that's like in the hallway of this house, and she ordered a pedestal sink because there was a pedestal sink in there, um, but it was like this, uh, like an avocado green color, you know, from like 1987. Um, so they retiled the floors. She ordered a new toilet, new sink, and she had it all shipped down there from Amazon. And the guy installed it, um, and and like they didn't make it clear in the, the measurements, but like the basin itself was only six inches wide. So imagine a pedestal sink with a basin that's only six inches wide. It was just as tall as a normal pedestal sink. You know, it was like three or four feet tall, but like it had this tiny little basin on top. And like my contractor sent me a picture of it, like with his hand next to it. And like his hand was literally bigger than the you know, the, the basin from the sink. It looked like a little kid or a troll sink. Um, so yeah, it reminded me of, um, oh man, what was that, that movie? Um, now I'm going to draw a blank on it. Uh, it was like a, it, like a fake rock band. Um, the whole hello, Rockstar? No, Hello Cleveland. Um, Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Oh, Spinal yeah. Tap. Yeah. So remember when they they lower like the, the monuments on the stage and it's supposed to be Stonehenge <laughs> and it was like super tiny. That that was basically the sink. So there's there's gonna be about four people in our audience that probably get that reference, but that's not Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen Spinal Tap, go out there and well, you can't rent the video anymore. Whatever whatever it is you do these days to watch a movie. They're it. they're making another one. Do you know that they're making yeah. a sequel? Really? Yeah. Those guys are still alive? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be the original guys or not. But I think, I think Michael McKeon's still alive. I think, I think he, still he, alive. he is. In this world, it honestly it doesn't matter anymore. They just CGI you in and, and figure it all out later. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I don't have anyway. any. I don't have any troll sinks or anything. I'm just kind of uh, getting back into the groove. Uh, but it's kind of weird for me because uh, from the time I got home from Thriller Fest until the time I go back to New York is like two weeks because I'm going back for uh, NFT NYC, which is a massive uh, NFT conference, which I'm really looking forward to because it's all industries, entertainment sectors. They have different uh, like uh, strands or, or um, that you can go to. So there's one for music. There's one for like literature and poetry, finance. Uh, it's crazy. So yeah, I'm, I kind of have like this weird two week interim where, uh, in, in between trips to New York, I, I would be interested in going to that just to watch people geeking out over NFTs, <laughs> like just stand in a corner and just watch what that looks like. There will be no shortage of that. Uh, <laughs> there's some, when you great... leave, are you going to tell your wife, are you going to say BRB going to NFT NYC? Oh my God. TTYL. So bad. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad joke. And Hey, I want to give a shout out All to right. somebody. Um, I want to give a shout out to uh, uh, our friend Courtney Kenny. Um, and uh, a couple years ago, I don't, Jay, I guess it would have been like 2018 or 2019. Um, we, uh, we helped her with a book um, called Steel Guardian when Jay and I were briefly had a publishing company. Um, and uh, anyways, um, we, we helped her with this book, Steel Guardian, and it is, uh, currently a, it made the final, it's a finalist for the Hugh Howey led, um, I believe it's the science fiction self-publishing awards. Nice. Um, and she's one of the finalists. So with, with that book. So, uh, I just want to give a shout out to Courtney who, uh, writes under the pen name Cameron Coral. So congrats, Courtney. That's awesome. Very nice. Cool. Very nice. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take care of some business and then we'll get on to our guest for the week. So, I uh, want to give a warm shout out, as always, to our friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. If you are going to publish a book wide, then going through KWL is a must. You can set your price, uh, take advantage of promo monthly promotional opportunities, and no exclusivity. So uh, link in the show notes, or you can get there by going to KoboWritingLife.com. All right. Uh, who do we got uh, this week, J.D.? All right, this one's going to be fun. We've got Christopher Golden. He's a, a New York Times bestseller, Bram Stoker Award winner of uh, many novels. I don't even know how many he's got at this point. Um, major staple at StokerCon and probably one of the nicest guys in the business. Uh, his latest book is called Road of Bones. It's out right now. Um, so here he is, Christopher Golden. All right, man, first question. Uh, when is that Sons of Anarchy novel coming out? What do you mean? It's been out for years. <laughs> the follow-up. Oh, <laughs> uh, there is no follow-up. There's no follow-up. Um, yeah, it was a it was a one and done. Uh, it was interesting because I feel like they waited way too long to get started. So by the time the novel came out, the show was basically done. Yeah. You know, and um, they really should have started doing novels, you know, at the end of the first season. Um, so, yeah, it was it was interesting. So I think, you know, people seem to really like the book, but that was it. That was it, huh? OK, now <laughs> I kind of yeah. figured. I mean, I, I was uh, scanning your list. I mean, your list of media tie ins and comic books like it's it's massive. And, uh, you know, I, I saw the likes of, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Battlestar Galactica and then, you know, Sons of Anarchy. It just seemed like a, it seemed like an outlier within there. I was really curious as to how that came about. Yeah, you never know what you never know what's going to show up. You know, um, 
I don't do a ton of, even at the time I did that one, I don't really do a lot of media tie and stuff anymore, mm. but things come up that you're just like, well, I've got to do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had done, it was interesting because when I was doing a lot of media tie-ins, I got offered things that I passed on. Um, so for instance, I had done this series called Body of Evidence, a book series, uh, 10 books in a series of young adult murder mysteries, basically thriller, like forensic thrillers. And <clears throat> pardon me, like I said, I've got this cough for like six weeks. Um, so they offered me CSI, like when CSI came first came on the air and they had done no tie-ins, they actually came to me first, which was great because, because of these body of evidence books. Um, and so, you know, I've I worked in horror as sort of my home, you know, uh, and it's the thing that I'm mo most passionate about or the genre, but I like all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, I, I'm passionate about so many different kinds of um, entertainment books, film, comics, you know, I watch, you know, 1930s, 1940s Hollywood movies every week. Um, so I like all kinds of stuff. And I was a huge fan of Sons of Anarchy. Um, and I, uh, I was in touch with Kurt Sutter at the time. Um, and uh, I don't know, it ended up, I, I it ended up being one of the reasons that they chose St. Martin's of the publishers who were um, vying for the rights at the time was because that was my publishing home. Um, so that was great. I mean, it was, it was great fun to do. Um, uh, I, I feel like the, the book itself actually came out, I think really well, but it was done in such a quick period. You know, it was one of the fastest because again, they were like, they took forever at Fox to approve everything. So by the time I had to start writing the book, um, it was like one of the fastest things I've ever written, um, wow. which is, I think it came out pretty good despite that. But yeah, but yeah, man, I've done, I did the one and only Uncharted novel too. And, and since that movie came out, I keep getting emails from people saying, when are you doing more? And I'm like, I, I would happily do more. You yeah. Know? yeah, it's kind uh, of out of your hands though, right? Yeah, I mean, it's out of my hands and also, you know, there are most of the time I want to just work on my own stuff, yep. but there are things that come up that I'm like, no, I would like to do that. Yeah. And yeah. Um, all of the, all of the DNA that goes into uncharted is all stuff I love. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, uh, speaking of your stuff, um, gosh, that cover for road of bones, one of the best covers I think I've ever seen. Can you talk about where that came from or how that developed? Um, it's amazing. Um, you know, it's interesting because, um, I've written a lot of books and I agree with you. I think it's probably the best cover I've had. And, you know, often with St. Martin's, what happens is they'll, they'll come and they'll say, okay, we're going to have my editor, Michael Homler will say, we're going to have cover conference. You know, do you have any thoughts? And usually I just have, um, please don't do this. Or, uh, here are some elements I'd love to see. Um, I did a novel called red hands where I, uh, I gave them a very specific idea and what we ended up with was a version of that idea that was better. So like I described exactly what I wanted and they gave me exactly what I asked for, but better than the version that I had in my head, which is great. Um, with Road of Bones, um, 
I don't know, man. It was uh, um, inspiration on the designer's part. Jonathan Bush is the guy who did the cover. And uh, I think I just said, you know, I just want a road going through a snowy forest. You know, um, I said, I certainly didn't suggest the skull motif. And I probably never would have because 99% of the time, if you suggest something like that, it's going to come out looking like crap. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but Jonathan did a fantastic job. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed too, uh, uh, even Stephen King noticed the artwork on on the cover of that book and that's not necessarily something he tweets about or covers. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny with what happened with that was that I had, um, he had been a very early reader on the book. Um, in fact, I think other than my agent and my editor, um, he was probably the first person to read it. Um, and cause I reached out to him, you know, and I was like, Hey, I think you'll really like this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he, and he said, um, we'll send it to me. No promises, no guarantees. Um, <clears throat> so I, I sent him a bound galley of it. And about two weeks later, he emailed me because the New York times had just published in the Sunday times. They just published a long article about the road of bones and he emailed me a link to the article and I'm 99% sure that it was the article that made him read my book. Wow. Cause you know, people send him books all the time. Right. And I think he saw the article and was intrigued by the article and went, I should check this book out. Um, <clears throat> so um, he read that. And so what, and he, and he um, gave me a blurb on the book, which was a phenomenal blurb. And so when the book, when the cover came into my email inbox, I immediately emailed it to him and I said, Hey, it's super early, but I wanted to share this with you. You know, thank you so much again, blah, blah, blah. And I said, and by the way, no one has seen this yet. It's not appeared anywhere. Um, You know, but if you felt like sharing it, it wouldn't break my heart. Um, And he did. I was, I was actually pretty shocked by that. Um, but I was really appreciative. I'm really, you know, he's been people, I think, uh, I've seen actually on a Facebook group that I'm a part of so many assumptions about, about Stephen King as an author. Um, and all these, you know, people like, Oh, he, everybody seems to think he doesn't write his own books and like all of this. I just don't understand like where these ideas come into people's heads. Um, But the thing is that he obviously he writes his own books and more than that, there isn't a more passionate reader out there, you know, and he's like always looking to be supportive. And in fact, I'm, I try to be, I try to follow that inspiration, you know, like to just be as supportive as I can possibly be mainly because, and I say this all the time, like when I was in school when I was a little kid in like, you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and annoyingly probably when I was even older, I was always the kid who wanted to share everything I loved. If I liked something, I wanted everybody else to like it too, you know, Um, a movie, a book or whatever. And I'm still that way. So now there's just social media so that if I'm reading something, uh, like I just read uh, the new novel. It's not out yet by Adrian McKinty, um, who doesn't need my help. I mean, his last book, the chain was like massive, massive bestseller. Um, but his new book is called the Island. And it's, it's so good. Um, 
And so I, I'll post about that at some point in the next couple of days because I just feel like, um, I feel like if you if if something gives you that pleasure, you want other people to feel the same pleasure that you felt when you were you were experiencing that thing. And so um, I think that's the way that that he is too. And thank God he is. You know, I love that approach, and I, and I love that you're paying it forward too because uh, it from what I've seen in. Uh, and for most of the authors who I come into contact with, there's, there's no strings attached. Um, you know, we couldn't write enough books to keep up with reader demand. It's not like writers are in competition with each other. If anything, they're in competition. We're in competition with other forms of media or social media or phones, but not each other. So I love the, I love the idea of just like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm enthusiastic about this. I'm happy about it. So I'm going to share it with other people. I, I always want to, I want to tell other people about the things, you know, cause I, I think, well, if I had that experience, hopefully you will too. And they also, <clears throat> one of the cliches that I'm constantly coming back to, and I believe cliches most of the time are cliches because they're fundamentally true or a lot of them are, you know? Um, and the one that I always talk to my friends about is a rising tide lifts all boats, you know, and it's so true. You know, and we're seeing that right now in that for the first time in literally probably 30 years, horror is having a moment. And uh, and that's good for anybody who writes horror. So if uh, if it started with the success of Joe Hill and Paul Tremblay and and other people um, and continues on with the, the more recent successes of Sylvia Moreno Garcia and uh, uh, and Stephen Graham Jones and the other things that are happening, that's good for everyone. And so, uh, you know, it's like, I have, I have many thoughts about JK Rowling. Um, most of them more recent ones, very negative thoughts. <laughs> but if you go back to the beginning, um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone created a generation of readers. It brought so many people into bookstores and uh, and and libraries and made them passionate about books. I, you know that is good for everybody, and so um, that's what you want: people excited about books. <laughs> yep, couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I don't want to skip over this. Uh, I want to come back to something. Uh, we won't spoil anything for listeners who haven't read it yet. But uh, give us the elevator pitch for Road of Bones because we mentioned the article in King talking about it. So give us the the premise. So and you know it's really funny too. I've had a number of people um, post their complaints about the fact that the novel itself isn't quite the same as the publisher's description of the book on the uh, on the cover. And all I can say about that is that uh, you know, whoops, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> um, but Road of Bones is about a guy named Felix Teagland, uh, who's a uh, reality television producer uh, and documentary filmmaker who's traveling in Siberia with his buddy, Jack Prentice, who is like the only, only one of his friends left who still will invest time and money in him. Um, and they're, they're in Siberia on the Road of Bones because they are trying to do test footage that they can use to try to sell a TV show called Life and Death on the Road of Bones, which will be about the people who live there and how they survive because the Road of Bones is a real place called the Kalima Highway. And uh, the Kalima Highway has along it 
the coldest uh, um, inhabited settlements on earth. Uh, little towns that are frequently in the winter that get down to, you know, I mean, 50, 60 degrees below zero on a regular basis. And, some t- and the coldest recorded temperature in a habitable place has been recorded in one of these places. It was like 80 or 90 degree below, degrees below zero. Um, and, you know, if you're on the road of bones in the wintertime, and you run out of gas, you have a car accident or your car breaks down in some other fashion and nobody comes along, you will die. Flat out, full stop, you're dead. Um, So just that alone was enough to make me feel like this was a setting that would be an extraordinary place to tell a story. And add to that the fact that the Road of Bones exists, it's 1200 miles long and it was built by prisoners from gulags that the Soviets built. Um, And basically one of the reasons that they built all these gulags there was so they would have workers for the road and hundreds of thousands of people died. They worked to death and froze to death and and collapsed while making the road. And they were literally paved under. Uh, And so they're all still there. Um, What we're seeing right now with the behavior of Russia and Ukraine uh, just is sort of an echo of, uh, of the same kind of behavior that led to the creation of this road. Um, my novel isn't really about the road. It's about something, it's a horror story that happens on and around the road. Uh, although the echoes of the um, horrible things that happen there still exist. For me though, part of the reason, and I, I know I talk a lot, but part of the reason, What I love about the story is that it's a story about people who live on the fringes of civilization. We live in a world where we assume that uh, there's no wilderness left. You know what I mean? That there's no uh, extent. People climb Mount Everest because they think, you know, this is the extreme. This is the edge. Um, And there are other edges, right? There are places where civilization just ends. And what the road of bone, what road of bones, the novel is about is, uh, well, I don't want to give away the plot, but you know, it's about what, what exists beyond that edge basically. So. So tell me how research factors into your writing, uh, if it does. I mean, it varies dramatically from project to project. I write a lot of comic books as well. Um, both, um, uh, most of them with Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy. Mike and I have a, uh, our own separate universe called the Outerverse. And I also do a lot of Hellboy projects. And so with that, I'm always trying to tell the artist, um, I'm, I'm trying to give the artist as much help as I can so that uh, what they're seeing is sort of what's in my brain. And that requires lots of research. I think that people don't, people who read comics don't necessarily think about the research that goes into what they see. Um, But so much is like um, Google image searching and searching for the history of something. So you can make uh, readers won't care if it's not accurate, but I care. Um, Or it's a version of something, you know, so you'll never know. You never know from one day to the next, what bizarre thing you're going to be searching for. And then diving down a rabbit hole, um, 
I, I frequently have so many windows open on my computer um, because it's like, you know, you left that window open because it was interesting, but it led you to six others that are also still open just in case you need one piece here, one piece there. I'm working on a project right now that takes place in the um, Amazon rainforest. Um, and, you know, it, it's just sort of one thing after another. And, and I think for me, the trick is to not let myself get too bogged down. You know, if you've got to get in, get the pieces you need to tell your story and get out. Um, because otherwise you will be spending all of your time reading, researching. Uh, and at the end of the day, your job is not to convince the experts. Your job is to convince the layman. You know, your job is to convince the average reader um, so even when I interview people, I did three shark novels under a pseudonym um, that were really fun to write. But when I was interviewing um, experts at Woods Hole, um, and they love these kinds of conversations because I was <clears throat> one of the conversations I was having, it was, a, it was a research vessel that they have. And I'm like, look, I need a shark to sink this boat. And the guy's like, the, the hull is fiberglass. He's like, that's never going to happen. You know, it's not wood. You can't stave in the side of the of the ship it's like that's just never going to happen and i said no, no no you're missing my point i need it to happen um because i i need to get from point a to point b and that that's absolutely necessary um and he's like well and i'm like no no i don't need you to believe it i just need everybody else to believe it so he's like well i suppose if you know and he gave me a sort of a sequence of events that would never happen in real life but it's possible. And, uh, and I was like, that's all I need. That's fine. Um, <clears throat> so stuff like that is really fun, you know? So how do you take then that, uh, that kind of research and, and, uh, and start your drafting process? What does, what does that look like? Are you at a computer? Or are you doing longhand? Are you outlining? No, I, I wouldn't know where to begin to write longhand anymore. I write notes. <laughs> I write notes longhand and I'll write and I make lists. I'm a big list maker. And, you know, I, as I go, I'm, I have a notebook that I'll write character information, like um, the character's appearance or what their relationship is to somebody or little bits of information that I'm going to need later. And I don't want to go back through the manuscript and search for it if I can avoid that. But as far as writing and even outlining, Almost always that's just on a computer because I have friends, you know, my buddy Tim Levin has written a couple of novels completely longhand. My hand wouldn't even do that. <laughs> I couldn't I'd get, get mine to do it either. Two, and my hand would be like, you know, so um, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, but uh, when I'm researching, a lot of my research is just during, you know, like, a lot of times I'll have stumbled across something that has inspired me or prompted the idea for the book or the story or whatever it might be. And I've researched enough to understand where I want to go with the story. And then I just start. And then as I go, I'm like, oh, I don't know enough about this in order to make this scene work. So therefore I need to pause now and go and go down that rabbit hole and figure out um, you know, how to make this scene work you know, um, because again, you know, there's one of my favorite writers from the eighties and nineties, horror writers, I'm not going to name the author, but was a big, big historical researcher and made the sort of 
cardinal error of including way too much of the research in the book. So it, the book would always get super bogged down with all of these details. And I enjoyed the details, but I just feel like uh, it was, so much of it was unnecessary. You know, I, I just, just give me the information I need to know um, and, you know, decorate it a little bit and move on. Um, so I don't know that. And that's just my, my style, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Was that a style uh, you've always had? Is that something you've developed over the years? Um, <clears throat> it's tough to say, you know, uh, I think every writer is different and I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about my voice. Um, I do think that it took me many years to find a voice that felt completely organic. Um, but that isn't to say that I've spent a lot of time um, questioning it. I just wrote. And that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like I, I, was, I was lucky in the sense that I literally sold my first novel. Um, so lucky in one sense, but also that meant that I was sort of learning in public. You know, um, so many writers have X number of trunk novels and um, I was lucky in the sense that I don't have any, but, um, but also that meant that all my uh, dirty laundry is out there for everybody to see, you know, like um, all the, you know, warts and all, they're all out there. So did you, I know it was a long time ago, but when you sold that first book, did you feel like I can do this? Like I can make a living at this or was it, well, I'm going to, I'll see what happens with book two. Like what were your thoughts? Well, you know, I had written, uh, I'd written about 125 pages and an outline and um, the offer came in for two books, the, that one in a sequel. Um, and it wasn't much money. Uh, but at the time I didn't have, I was married but I didn't have any kids and I didn't have a mortgage. Um, so I had a great job in New York um, and I quit my job. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make a go of it because I, because I didn't have a mortgage and I didn't have kids. And I was like, if I'm ever going to make this leap now is the time. Um, so, yeah. Nice. As they say, the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> but, you know, let's be, I, I want to be real about it though. I have to say, so I've been full-time this year. I have been writing full-time for 30 years. Congratulations, by the way. That's Thank amazing. Um, and, uh, but there have been at least five or six times over the course of that 30 years where I have thought I need to get a real job. And I've uh, many times I've actually started to look for a job and then something shifts and, and work comes in and it all goes back and it's, and things are okay. But I have been saying for 30 years that I have no problem with the idea of going back and working a real job if I need to do that. Um, I don't, and I think that what <laughs> the life that non-writers think that writers lead uh, is so far away from uh, from reality. It rem I always think about uh, um, there's a comedian named Larry Miller. Um, who's probably most famous for being the shopkeeper in uh, in Pretty Woman, 
um, when Richard Gere says, we're going to need lots of sucking up. That's Larry Miller. And he does a thing. He did a thing in his standup many years ago. And he said the difference between how often, um, uh, how often women think men think about sex and how often men actually think about sex is the difference between shooting a bullet and throwing it. Um, and I feel like the life that writers lead versus the life that readers think writers lead is similarly disparate, <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> just, uh, you know, anyway. Well, I, I won't ask you to, to divulge anything personal, but uh, I, 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 you're hundred percent correct. Can, can you give us an example of something that uh, a non-writer or a reader thinks uh, a full-time writer does that's uh, not, not that glamorous? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I think people think we make, I, I think people think that the average writer makes way more money than we actually do. Firstly, um, you know, lots of writers make lots of money, but the percentage of, of writers who make that kind of living is, uh, is minuscule. Um, and so, so many of us are, I've, I've been saying forever for there, we used to refer to a whole spectrum of writers as the mid list. And the mid list was a publishing term. It wasn't the people who were, the lead titles that were released every month, that it wasn't the people who were sort of the fillers. Um, and over time, the mid list just vanished basically, right? To the point where publishers were really trying to make uh, every book a hit. And if it wasn't a hit, then you were done, right? And so um, I've always said, I've been sort of hanging from the bottom of the mid list, like Luke Skywalker under Cloud City. <laughs> for the last 20 years, right? Um, not the bottom, I'm sorry, the bottom, I, I've, been, I've been hanging on to the bottom of the top, I guess is what I'm saying, like, because the mid list fell away. Um, and, uh, but as far as that's concerned, I mean, there's a reason that I'm as prolific as I am. I made a commitment a long time ago to, to, to use my career to take care of my family and, and all of that stuff. And, um, uh, and I've done that. You know, I tell my wife that I, uh, and, and this isn't to say that I'm not proud of, of almost all of the work that I've done. I really am. I love so many of these books. Um, but I always say to my wife that for me, retirement will be um, when I can uh, always choose art over commerce. When I can only do the things that uh that are the, that are purely done out of inspiration. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, like you, uh, you opened asking about Sons of Anarchy and I had a blast doing that. And I was a big fan of that show. Um, but if I could have done only my original work that year, I would have. Right. So that doesn't mean I didn't love writing that book. I had a blast, you know, cause it's always like, um, I want to do my, my take on that, you know? Um, and I loved the Irish characters. Um, I'm Irish American. So I loved the Irish characters in that season. I wanted to do more with that. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, my agent used to say like, you know, you need to just do one novel a year, which I'm, which I am doing basically now. Um, and I'd be like, yeah, that's great. Who's paying the bills, <laughs> you know? Um, so it is interesting to me that, you know, people just have this view, especially Hollywood. 
I laughed so many times. I can't remember what the movie was recently, but a couple of years ago, I saw a movie where a guy had had uh, his first book deal and he was living in this penthouse writing the book. And he was like three years behind on delivering the book, his first novel. Um, and he was still living in this penthouse. And I was just like, come on, you know, I don't know. Anyway. So yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's it, but every writer's different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I feel kind of silly now because the, I found a rumor on the internet that there was another Sons of Anarchy book coming out, but it clearly was not coming from you. <laughs> well, I mean, there might be, but it wouldn't be coming from me. I think yeah. one of the things that, um, one of the reasons why there has been a long term rumor, a lot of, there's a rumor that there's another book that exists already. Um, which was the the life and times of Sam Crow or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was because originally, when we talked about doing a book, it was going to be the book that Jax Teller is reading oh, that his father wrote. Yeah. Um, and that was because Kurt Sutter apparently had written portions of that and had supposedly copious, copious notes. Um, but it turned out eventually that Kurt could not find this giant file of notes that he'd had on it. Um, and then time wise, it was like, no, you have eight weeks. And I'm like, there's, there's no way I can create that book to Kurt Sutter's satisfaction <clears throat> in eight weeks. It's just not going to happen. So I think it, somebody had released this as a book that was going to come out before we even had agreed that it was a real thing. Ah, okay. Um, and so that is not the book, obviously, that ended up being written. Right, so. right. All right. Well, we'll leave Sons of Anarchy in the past. Let's, uh, let's wrap yep. up today with one more uh, fun question. You, <clears throat> you, are, um, you are a veteran. You've been in this business a long time. <laughs> uh, th things have changed. Some things have stayed the same. Uh, what are you excited about in either writing or publishing in, in the near future, the next one to three years, maybe? Um, well, look, I'm so excited about, as I said, the moment that horror is having right now. Um, I'm, I'm hugely excited about it. Um, and honestly, the other thing that I'm incredibly excited about is, uh, is the diversity of what's happening in horror. And I think you know, this is no, I am a middle-aged straight white guy. Me too. <laughs> so this is no, yeah. So this is no like reflection necessarily on other middle-aged straight white guys, but because we all grew up reading the same horror novels in the eighties and nineties, so much of what comes from guys like us has a familiarity to it you know um and ironically the 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 novel i have my next novel that comes out in january is a 1980s suburban horror drama um <clears throat> hopefully it's not like every other book that i read from the 80s um but it certainly is inspired by all of that but uh and i love those stories but I love that now I have easy access to 
all of these other kinds of stories from other voices that I would never have thought even were like, again, like when I was in the eighties, it never occurred to me that I was reading, you know, some women, but uh, 90% of the horror that I was reading was written by middle-aged white guys. Um, and uh, I didn't have, there were no, uh, easily accessible walking into laureates or B Dalton's or whatever, um, black voices or, or Latino voices in horror, um, that were right, right there in front of me, you know, and now, uh, the diverse voices in horror everywhere. And I love it. Um, like I just read, um, Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt, um, which is, uh, Gretchen is a, a trans woman who's written a novel in which uh, basically all the all of the men, if you have an uh, a Y chromosome, you've gone insane. You've had a. It's basically like twenty eight days later, just for men. Um, and it's a story in which the main characters are trans women who need to have hormone therapy, et cetera, et cetera, despite the fact that it's post-apocalypse, in order to keep their uh, uh, hormonal levels safe so they won't go crazy. And it's in a world where there are radical like uh, uh, TERFs who want to keep them out because uh, they hate them and they think they're men and they, they, uh, they think that they're gonna turn into ravening lunatics. Um, not only could I not have written this book, it would never have occurred to me. And, and so that's what I love about, I love this book. It is so good. Uh, it's so nasty, violent, like gruesome, uh, and, and so good. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what I love about horror now is that, um, there are all these voices that turn my head. You know, and, and that's what I love. Also want to make a nice mention of our friends over there at Atticus. So I've been uh, working on some back catalog titles, getting ready, and uh, having them all in Atticus is, has been great. I, I feel organized. I feel like I've got um, I'm on top of things. And, uh, the, and, and Dave and his team are just doing constant development. So uh, if you're looking for formatting um, and you want sort of a web-based solution, make sure you check out Atticus. Uh, Zach, I mean, we got to talk Sons of Anarchy, right? Yeah, it was funny <laughs> because I when I saw that uh, Christopher was up this week, one, I was like, man, Jay better ask him about Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> and right out of the gate... Um, Cause it was fun. I remember I saw that book on in in a Barnes and Noble or something a couple of years ago. And I'm I'm not generally into the media tie and stuff. Like I'm just not the reader for that. But that was one. I came so close to picking that one up just because I love that show so much. So I was I was pleased to hear you come right out of the gate and ask him about that. And uh, so it was cool to hear some about that. Um, and you know that he got to do one he was really passionate about. Uh, he also talked about Uncharted, which was cool. Um, definitely one of my favorite video game series. Um, so uh, he did the media tie-in for that, he said, which was cool. 
Um, so yeah, that was, that was really interesting. And, uh, yeah, I could tell you were excited to ask him about Sons of Anarchy. I, I was honestly a little disappointed because I had heard rumors of a, a sequel and I thought he was yeah. behind it and he wasn't, but that's okay. That's all right. We still give him props. The idea it. y'all talked about at the end about actually having the book that Jax was reading through the whole series that his dad wrote would have been, uh, that John Teller wrote would act. That would be an awesome book. Yeah. Like, that'd be really, really cool. Yeah. So, um, but I could totally see why he was nervous about trying to do that in eight weeks. There's no way you could do that. I don't, Eric, no, I wouldn't, shouldn't say no way, but it'd be very difficult. I, I love those types of tie in things. I've, I've got, um, did you guys ever watch supernatural? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was on. It was on forever. Um, I've actually got a copy of um, Sam or the Father's uh, Journal. Yeah. Like that was a book that they actually put out after the fact, and, and same kind of thing. Like it was integral to the storyline, but they never actually touch on it. You know, they're carrying it. They open it up. You might see a page or two, but like somebody actually, you know, like went out there, took the time to actually write it, and it's just it's a really cool read because it just kind of gives you some some insight. Um, one of my favorites, which has nothing to do with either of these topics, is um, a book called the, the Biography of 007. Um, and it's written as if the, the original James Bond was a real person that Ian Fleming knew in, in, in his life and basically just documented huh. the guy's real life activities. And it's, I mean, it's an old book. I mean, it's from like 1970 something, but it, it's probably one of my all time favorites, you know, for that type of thing. Nice. One of the things that, that Chris brought up, um, the, the covers, and like, I know we've all been through this, but like, you know, you get an idea for a cover in your head and like you sort of picture it and then you have to communicate that idea to, to somebody else and it, it never comes out, you know, like the way that you expect it to. Um, if you're lucky, it comes out better. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm terrible at this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... I feel like I'm, I don't know if I'm good at it or if I just have a really good cover artist, (laughs) but I always feel like, I think with covers, I feel like there's a balance. Like I I talk to some authors who give their cover artists like way too much information. And I think you have to know your artist and like give them the creative freedom and understand like this is their job. You're not the cover designer. But but if you have an idea in your head, you also want to convey that. So you have to find the balance on exactly how to, and even like, like communicate with your cover artist, like how much information do you want? You know? Um, and I've been fortunate to where, uh, I've been a similar situation where Christopher is where I'll, I'll have an idea in my head and it'll come out looking like that, but better. Um, that's happened several times. Yeah. I think, um, you meant, you kind of touched on it too, Zach. And, and what Christopher said was sometimes, you, we we want to give the cover designer too much. Like yeah. he said, like if I get too specific, or like if he had mentioned the skull on on Road of Bones, like it wouldn't have turned out as cool if he had mentioned it. So it's this really weird sort of dynamic where like you have a vision in your head, but you have to like how much of that do you do you give to the designer versus how much of that do you let them interpret. Yeah, and you have to be careful of it too. I mean, at least you know, in some of the covers that I've had, like if, if you mention the word skull, you know, like it will definitely lean towards horror. And like that's such a fine line. If you just go a little bit too far over it, a lot of people just aren't going to buy that book because it's, you know, they, they see it as just something outside of their wheelhouse. Um, it's done very subtly on that cover, which is one of the reasons why it works so well. You know, like it, it the cover still ap- appeals to thriller, or thriller readers and horror readers. Like it, it somehow, you know, walks that line, which is awesome. 
Um, something else he brought up, and like this happens a lot. Yeah, yeah, I need this particular thing to happen. How can it happen? Yeah, you know, I was like going to bring the, that up. Yeah, the, the shark attacking the fiberglass boat. I'm going through that right now. I'm plotting out that this idea for the, the the latest book I'm working on, and I need a character to have a particular medical condition. Um, so I've been racking my brain trying to figure this one out. So I actually emailed um, one of the, the mentoring students that I had because he's a, like a, an actual doctor, um, and I told him what I was shooting for, and he sent me something back that works perfectly. Um, you know, we had to twist a couple of facts around. You know, but it, it's still something that could possibly happen, but it's far enough off where, you know, it's not an obvious sort of thing. Um, so I think reaching out to experts for that is, is key. Yeah, this is I, I, I loved hearing him talk about this. And I felt like this is something I really needed, especially right now, because I get really caught up in not like with research stuff. I get nervous about certain things because um I just, I don't want to come off looking ignorant on a subject. And I love what he said about, I don't have to impress the experts. I just need layman people to, to believe it could actually happen. That rang so true with me. And honestly, uh, that I, that made kind of a bell ring in my head where I was like, why am I worried? Because like this happens a lot in the post-apocalyptic genre. Like you don't want to you don't want to get that one star review because you piss off the survival list nuts. And it's like, I have to remember in the flavor I'm writing, that's not the reader I'm going after. So if I get that, if you know, I don't have to necessarily get all those things right. They just need to be somewhat believable to the layman person. Well, and I think too, it, it talking to those experts, whether or not you use what you talk to them about, just the conversation yeah. will give you so many ideas and yep. experts love to show their expertise, they, they really do. Like they're proud of it. And um, like, for example, on for the Baron series, I interviewed like a world uh, world record balloonist, like some guy that like that rode a balloon all the way around the globe because that was part of book three where we had the characters in an air balloon. So I was like, yeah. well, I got to know like how did they land and what if it's cold and you know how do you navigate it? And this guy gave me firsthand information and it was so great and. Uh, you know, a sliver of that made its way into the book. But just having that conversation gave me all these ideas about the situation I could put the character in. Well, you just touched on something that I think is really important with this because I've edited a lot of books that have this kind of thing in it. And I think a lot of times when an author goes out to an expert and, and gets advice on this, they tend to put far too many facts in yep. the book to try and back it up. You know, like this is so crazy, it shouldn't possibly happen, but here's why it could happen in, you know, literally a page or two of, of info dump. Um, you have to be really careful of that. I mean, you just basically just graze over it. Just just enough of the information should be there to, to make it seem plausible, but n nothing beyond that. It's almost like what we were talking about with Andy Weir. You know, like he came up with whatever it was it, the gizmo, you know, that that's in um, his, his one the book. The Astro Torch or whatever that thing yeah, was. Yeah, right? you know, something something silly. Like if you, if you just kind of explain it away as something that's just sort of there, you know, like you kind of need to do that with a lot of these types of things. If, if you get too detailed, it you know, you oversell it, it, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, but I feel a lot of writers get caught up in exactly what you're saying. They feel like I learned this, so I need to make sure the reader knows that I know what I'm talking about. And like you said, a lot of that stuff is just more for you to know as the writer and just convey what is needed to the reader. And you don't have to put your research page on there. So I think that's a common thing, especially in sci-fi that a lot of newer writers and such do. He um, brought up learning in public. His, his first book basically sold, and then you know, straight out of the gate, everything he's doing is public. That, that's another big thing I think a lot of authors don't quite realize. Um, it, it can be a huge burden if your first book is a big seller. 
um, you know, if a lot of people read it, now you've got to follow it up with your sophomore effort and it's got to be just as good. And you're still trying to figure out how to do this. And, and a lot of times with that first book, you know, you get two, three, five, ten years or whatever to write that first one. Um, it may be your first book, but, you, you know, you get a chance to put a lot of time behind it. And the bigger seller that it is, you know, the, the more in demand your second book is going to be. And like you're going to there's going to be a lot of pressure on you to, to put out that that other book. Um, I, I personally have like three or four books on my computer that are never going to see the light of day. Um, I think at every author that I've ever met, um, you know, ha- has at least a couple books that they, they churn out before they really figure out what they're doing. So I, I can't imagine, you know, like that first book getting published and just everything you do after that, just kind of being under a microscope. Um, but, but that's where he, he was at. And, and it does happen to a lot of authors for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, somewhat related. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you guys about this because all three of us have kind of danced on the edges of horror in, in different ways and in different times in our career. And, you know, his, uh, his observation that horror is having a moment, like does, I, I think it is. Um, I, I don't know if uh, anyone would disagree with that, but does that change your approach to storytelling, your approach to publishing, to marketing um, or not? I, I'm curious. I mean, I per- one of the other problems that I tend to see when I'm working with mentoring students is I, like I can read their manuscript and I can kind of tell what they've been reading um, just from that manuscript. You can you can tell what their influences are, because like like Chris said, you know, there's just a, a limited pool of, of you know data and people tend to read you know recent books, you know, stuff recently published. And that kind of fuels whatever is coming next. Um, I, I purposely go. I try to go outside of that wheelhouse a little bit. I, I read really old stuff that, that might be obscure that nobody knows about anymore or has forgotten. Um, I read a lot of foreign translations um, because you know like our idea of horror here in the US is very different than what it is in Sweden or Russia or Turkey um, you know so like I try to dig into that type of thing as, as much as I can um, and, but all that basically does is just expand the pool I think in a lot of ways he's, he's right I mean we're still you know fielding we're, we're, we've got those same s- stories we're, we're recirculating over and over again um, and it is nice to see a little diversity sneak in there and, and you know mix it up a little bit yeah I was going to bring that up I thought that um, this resurgence coming with, um, this, the diversity. And I don't, I don't remember the author he mentioned at the very end, but, um, it was the, the trans author he mentioned and who had the post-apocalyptic, like 28 days later type book. Great premise, right? Yeah. I I would have never, yeah, there was a fantastic premise and like having to deal with the turfs and stuff like that. I was like, that was, that sounds really, really interesting. But that, as he said, like, I'll speak for all three of us here. None of us are going to write that book, you know? We're um we're we're two middle aged white guys and one really young white guy. So like none of us. <laughs> I'm not that young. <laughs> hey, go check my Wikipedia. So I don't think I have one. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, but yeah, none of us are gonna write that book. And it's um, and that's just one example. And to see those types of voices coming up and stuff, and and especially in that genre where I feel like you can do so much, is just really cool to see. And I'm glad I'm glad that he brought some attention to that too in this interview. Yeah. And, and not only that, like just read outside the genre a little bit. You know, if, yeah. if you're writing horror, you know, p- pick up a romance book. You don't have to show it to anybody. Don't let anybody know you're reading it. But it, it's going to help you write, you know, better, better horror if you if you do that. Um, a lot of authors tend to stick in their their lane. And I think that hurts them, too. That's what's great about the Kindle. No one has to know what you're <laughs> reading. It's like the brown paper bag of reading. So yeah. awesome. Well, uh, I don't I don't think. He- Christopher would be insulted if I called him a, a, a grizzled veteran. He's been around a while and uh, has, has stood the test of time and uh, was just a really interesting, fun conversation. I, and I think we're going to try and get him back on uh, for, for his next book, I think sometime in 2023. So if you like that interview, we definitely got another one coming. So 
Anything else from the interview? Any other takeaways you guys wanted to hit? All good. All right. Who's up next week? Next week, we've got a guy named Colton Hayes. Uh, he's an American actor and model, um, best known, I think, for starring in shows like Teen Wolf and Arrow on uh, CW. Uh, he just released one hell of a memoir. It's called Miss Memory Lane, so he's going to be coming on to talk about it. Awesome. Should be a good time. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode, and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.